Let's pray together. Father God, we were born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, the living and abiding word of God, Peter tells the saints of the dispersion. Unless a man be born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. So even now, Lord, because of the word you have spoken to us, that we might know who you are, the word that regenerates, the word that redeems, the word that sustains, the word that guides and guards us all our days, we beg that even now as your word is proclaimed, that you would guard our hearts and minds. O God, that you would have your way through the power of the Holy Spirit, through your word, that we would put away, as James says, all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and that we would receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. O God, guard our hearts, guard our minds, guard my lips, and be glorified in the preaching of your word, we beg in Jesus' name. Amen. We have gone on a journey in the last month and a half through Jonah. Chapters 1 through 4. We are in chapter 4 today. You can turn there. And consider where we've been. And within each chapter, we have seen the oceanic grace of God, of breadths and depths that are truly unimaginable. We saw God's grace extended to a pagan people by calling a foreign prophet to go and announce their pending condemnation. We see God's grace extended in a wicked storm to turn an unwilling runaway prophet back to him and do what he's asked him to do. We see God's grace extended in that storm to pagan sailors who in the face of the storm offered sacrifices to pagan gods but came to know the one true God through the stilling of the storm and obedience to his word. We see God's grace extended in the wicked storm by showing his might in rescuing the prophet with an appointed fish and three days later causing that fish to vomit Jonah out onto dry ground. We see God's grace extended to Jonah in extending him a command a second time to go to Nineveh and preach. And we see God's grace last week extended to Nineveh and finally bringing the prophet to them to warn them of their doom. God's grace extended to them in giving them hearts of repentance and God's grace extended to them in staying his hand of destruction. Today in chapter four, we see Jonah in awe over the repentance of the Ninevites at the word of God. We see him rejoicing at the wondrous kindness of God in extending to them such grace. We see Jonah in chapter four, staying in Nineveh for another year to teach them about the glories of the God of Israel. We see Jonah walking back from Nineveh down to Samaria and telling the people along the way of God's great work. And when he gets back to Israel in Samaria, preaching the word of, of repentance that came to Nineveh, to King Jeroboam, and seeing Israel repent from Samaria throughout the Galilee. Right? 
No. No. I wish that's how Jonah 4 read, but Jonah 4 does not read that way. Jonah chapter 4 is terrible. Have you ever been in a public place where a person blows a gasket at the clerk or at their spouse or at their child and you just want to kind of crawl under a rock in this cringeworthy situation? In chapter 4, we're going to look at one of the most heartbreaking responses to remarkable grace that you can imagine. And God's response to that backlash is by extending even more grace. In the dark heart of Jonah, we, we get a look into our own souls and find a petulance and a bitterness that not only beset the prophet, but besets us as well. A petulance and a bitterness in the face of God's sovereign grace and hand. Let's read Jonah chapter 4. After the repentance of Nineveh, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to live or to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left and also much cattle? May God be glorified in the reading of his word. The first the first and horrible thing we see in this chapter is Jonah's startling rage. I mean, he has, he has a no-holds-barred meltdown here. It says in the, in the ESV, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. The, the way the Hebrews constructed there, it says it displeased Jonah it exceedingly displeased Jonah, 
and he was angry. Displeased, broken in pieces. We would say we are beside ourselves. You know, that rage that is so bad that it finds you trembling. Exceedingly displeased. Uber, we would say uber displeased today. Mostest. That's how bad Jonah's displeasure was. And he was angry. It was burning. This, this word for angry is like burning. He was incensed, we would say. <laughs> and in that attitude, he prays to the Lord. Now, on Wednesday night, when we gather to pray, we've been going through the Psalms. And we've seen imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory psalms are those psalms where you are so frustrated with what's going down. You ask God to curse the enemy and destroy them. You know, dash them to pieces. We, we have seen in the psalms, psalms replete with emotions. From anger to sorrow to bitterness and every place in, in between. We have seen questioning of God. But in Jonah, in chapter 2, we see Jonah exalting God for his sovereign hand in verses 3 and 6. And now Jonah is enraged. And so the question has to be asked, is it okay for me to go to God enraged? First, let's understand that anger is a God-given emotion. We see God expressing wrath throughout scripture. We see Jesus himself being angry. There was one time on a Sabbath that he is in the synagogue and there's a man with a withered hand. And Jesus was going to heal the man and he heals the man's hand and everybody is upset that he would do this on a Sabbath. And Jesus was angry with the crowd, a righteous indignation for their questioning what he had done. Psalm chapter 2, verse 5, God says that he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. We see wrath is a natural response by God to unrighteousness. And we, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, are cautioned to be angry and do not sin. But even though anger is a God-given emotion, we are also warned often in Scripture about our anger. In James chapter 1, he writes that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Most of the time, our anger is misplaced and displaced. There are far more verses in the New Testament and in Scripture about not being angry, to put away wrath, malice, hatred, and such like than there is in the proper venting of your anger. So some considerations with regard to anger. We know, Nebuchadnezzar recognized it, that God is just and right in all his ways. God has purposes in the injustices and the evils that we do not know, we do not see, and we cannot even begin to understand. Now our anger at the injustice and the sin in this world is good. And it is valid, but such anger must be restrained. In your anger, do not sin. Paul warns 
the Roman, uh, the Roman church, and I read it at the start of worship in chapter 9 and verse 20. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Or why have you done what you have chosen to do? So what do I do when I'm angry? Well, I do not believe it is justifiable for us to be angry at God for what he has done. What we ought to do is to affirm the attributes of God. Affirm his goodness, his righteousness, his holiness, his justice, his perfect wrath, his perfect rage against sin in this world. It is appropriate for us to pour out our emotions to God regarding the darkness in this world. It's okay to be grieved. It's okay to be frustrated. It's okay to be angry at things. But we must turn to God and cry out to him for understanding. Weep that we don't get it. Understand and know that God does get it. And that he knows that even in the predicament, we are but dust. So here Jonah is, is infuriated. And you kind of go, what's his beef? His beef is that God is gracious. That God has extended grace to the Ninevites. I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah was a good Jewish trained prophet. You know, he went to little Saturday school, I guess it would be uh, back then in his rabbinical training. And he's quoting Exodus chapter 34, verse six, when God gives Moses the 10 commandments the second time, that is how God revealed himself to Moses. That I am God, merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah knew this. He had a recognition and a, and a comprehension of God's all-saturating grace. But we see a perversity and darkness in his heart. I knew you to be like this. And I don't want you to be like this. He, for some unknown reason, hates the Ninevites. We don't get it. He would like to see them just destroyed. That would be his preference. He didn't want to see grace extended to them. And there's no explanation as to why. But what is, the, what is the explanation of the darkness of the hatred of one of us toward another? What petty issues turn the love of a husband against his wife? What small discipline infuriates a child toward his parents in a beet red apocalyptic middle of Walmart tantrum? How is it that we in our country enslaved the Chinese to build the railroads or Africans to serve on plantations. How does racial hatred even continue today? Why do the Catholics hate the Protestants in Ireland? The Hatfields and the McCoys, the Montagues, Montagues, Montagues and the Capulets. God warned Cain that sin was crouching at his door when he hated his brother because his brother's offering was accepted and his was not. 
Rather than rejoicing at his brother's offering that was accepted before the Lord and altering the kind of offerings he would bring in the future, he hated God's favor on him. And he killed him. How twisted is Jonah's rage? I'd rather die. All rationality's gone. It's gone. All that's left is to wait for the lightning bolt to fall from heaven at this. We know that though his rage is against the Ninevites, God's grace to the Ninevites, in reality, his rage is against God. Jonah is hacked at God. Life did not turn out the way he wanted it to turn out. Jonah loathes the cards that God has dealt to him. And so, you know, I have to, I'm reading this and I'm, I'm just, I'm looking in the mirror. I feel like I'm holding the mirror up to my face. Do I gripe about the circumstances of life? We think that we have a justifiable reason for our displeasure. But who is and who has been sovereign in all of the circumstances of my life? Against whom do I really rage when Billy Ray gets the position for which I interviewed and not me? When my marriage doesn't provide me the bliss that I imagined, who am I going to be angry at? You led me to the wrong woman. You led me to the wrong job. Who am I going to rage at when the cop pulls me over and not the guy who sped past me yesterday going way faster than I was going? Who am I going to rage at when my kids turn out to be delinquent despite my discipline? I brought them up in the fear and the nurture of the Lord and they end up being dirtbags. Yeah, train up a child in the way he should go. When they run from the Lord, despite my discipleship. Who am I going to get mad at when my body rebels against me? My hair's not red enough. My hair's not blonde enough. My hair's not black enough. My hair's not thick enough. My physique, I crunch, I plank. My back. Dude, I'm only 20, 30, 40, 50, and it's giving out. Cancer striking me. Why me and not her? Strokes, diseases, the consequences of sin. Now, these may not be consequences of sin, but there are consequences to our sin. And so if I do sin and those consequences come against me, who am I, O oh man? God is doing a thing. God did a good thing in Nineveh. God does as he promises. God has never let you move beyond his sovereign designs. And yet we buck. It's like when you're holding your child and they're just uh, arching their back. So we wait for divine judgment, but instead we see God's breathtaking grace. God extends Jonah a lavish grace by attempting to call him off the edge. The glorious God, if anything, rather than outraging Jonah, he doesn't do that. He dials it down and is gently paternal. 
to Jonah and he asks him a simple question. Do you do well to be angry? A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. God's following his own proverb. And so we might ask, why does God not just smite this worm? And when we ask that, as soon as we ask that, we sound just like Jonah. <laughs> why, why are you not crushing him? Who, who are you, oh man? It's a valid question. We, you know, you, you wonder, you wonder, and it's, it's okay to ask that. It's okay to wonder, God, why are you doing what you're doing? But he doesn't promise to give us an answer, this side of glory. Now, this is important to understand. I am not you, and you are not me, and we are not Jonah. What grace is God going to extend to John that he's not going to extend to Tracy? Whose life is going to end early and whose life is going to be prolonged? Where's the justice? God dropped Ananias and Sapphira in their tracks in Acts chapter 5. His grace ended with them. Maybe it was gracious that he took them. God is always gracious. Back in the Exodus, God relented from destroying Israel when Moses stood up and said, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. You know, don't destroy them for your name's sake. Protect them. And God relented from destroying Israel twice. God gave Nineveh 40 days and a prophet and repentant hearts and extended them grace. God was under no compulsion to extend them grace. And so we have to understand that in this world, God is going to extend grace differently to every person. He is not a robot. He is not a machine to act as we would like him to act. It is not a question of equity. It is a question of grace. God is under no pressure. You say, that's not fair. And in truth, the Bible says you don't want fair. You would prefer grace. God's desire for us is that we would follow his instruction. And this is why he's given us his good word. This is why he has commanded Jonah. Jonah, do you do well to be angry? We know what his word says, and he begs us to follow after him. This is why Sunday after Sunday, Jeremy or I, you may feel like we're crushing your toes. But even as we preach a sermon, the sermon that he preaches is going to affect Jeff differently than Tim, differently than Royal, differently than Janine. God's grace is going to go out and do its good work. And he is calling us to change, to follow after him, to be the men and women he had, has called us to be. In Psalm 32, verses 8 through 9, God speaks of his instruction this way. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle, 
or it will not stay near you. So will I follow after the prodding and loving staff of my God? Jonah doesn't. Third here, again, we see Jonah spurn, disdain, hate God's grace. He goes out for a major sulk in verse 5 and goes up on the side of the hill. Now, we don't know, you know, when in the 40 days this is. I don't think the 40 days are complete. He's seen repentance. He hates the repentance. And he goes up on the hill to hope. Hope maybe, maybe God will actually still crush him. Maybe he will. Maybe he will destroy them. Maybe all my work will finally pay out. He builds himself a little booth, feast of booths. Go back to the Old Testament. The Israelites would go to Jerusalem and build themselves little booths, little lean-tos out of sticks. And they would live in this lean-to uh, during the Feast of Booths. And essentially, that's what Jonah has built. So he's built himself a small shelter from the Mideast sun. And we see God's good purposes continue to unfold even in the midst of a petulant prophet. In chapter 1, we saw that God appointed, God designed, God ordered a good uh, a fish, a great fish, to go and swallow Jonah. God appointed that fish. Now here, three times in the rest of this chapter, we see God appointing again. We see God's sovereign hand in the midst of this situation. In verse 6, God appoints a plant. God says it comes up overnight. Big, big enough to cover over him, and it provides him shade. You know, wow, that's great. And Jonah likes it. This is great. But what's missing? There is no thanksgiving from his mouth toward God's provision for him. He delights in the plant, but does not thank the one who has provided him the plant. We want the goods, but we don't want the provider of the goods. God is the God of good, and he is the God of disaster. God is sovereign. God was sovereign in the storm, in the midst of suffering. God was sovereign in the fish, in the path of salvation. God was sovereign in a plant. Are we going to be a people to give him thanks in all circumstances? And God appoints now a worm in verse 7. It attacks the plant and it withers. And on top of that, God appoints a scorching east wind. Now a worm. God appoints a worm first. A worm. Is God sovereign in the little things? God is sovereign in the little things. To bring a worm to the root of a plant, to chew up the plant and destroy it. Is God sovereign in the good of the growth of the plant? Yes. Is God sovereign in the destruction of the plant? Yes. Why would God destroy the good? I don't know. For his purposes. Why does Jesus tell the rich man to go and sell all that he has? Money's good. Stuff is good, right? Right until it gets in the way 
of you seeing God. I like the plant and I can't see God. I like my stuff and I can't see God. And so God makes Jonah's life miserable. He now physically suffers in the midst of his spiritual rage. I mean, we know heat here in Wichita Falls. We know what it's like when the wind starts to blow. It's terrible. When it's 105 degrees and the wind is blowing, it's like taking a hairdryer and just putting it on your face. It's wretched. And Jonah, Jonah retenders his resignation. He goes, I'm done. Dude, just kill me. Kill me now. This is, uh, it's better for me to die than to live. He sees death as preferable to a repentant people. He sees death as preferable because he doesn't have his plant anymore. In the rest of the chapter, we see the crescendo of God's grace. Just staggering. God once again condescends in parental love toward his brat of a child. Another instructive question. Do you do well to be angry now specifically for the plant? <laughs> Jonah blows a gasket and loses his mind. You know, we've probably all seen children sass their parents We've probably seen employees sass their boss. We've probably talked to Christians who have sassed God, who've talked back to God. But I've never seen anybody sass God in the middle of a conversation with God. The audacity that Jonah has here. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Son, you have no clue. You had nothing to do with the plant, and yet you had affection for the thing. This entire enterprise, Jonah, has not been about you. I'm saving a people, and you don't care. It's all orbiting around your little head. That's not what God's saying. God's way more gracious than that, but that's what he's implying. Nineveh wanted nothing to do with me. They didn't even know their right hand from their left. But through my word in you, they have now turned back to me. They were ignorant and now they live. Saint, we have no idea what God is doing in the storm. I don't know. In the boat, I don't know. In your classroom, I don't know. In the city, what is God doing? I don't know. In your job, I don't know. What is God doing in your relationship within your family, relationships within your family? Why is my son's, my friend's son, who's already profoundly deaf, losing his eyesight? Why did my mother-in-law lose her voice. Why does she need a feeding tube? 
Why has Elaine suffered with her voice? Why, David? Why, my brother? Why? You think of people you know. Why? God has purpose that we don't know and we don't understand. And he is good in all that he does. This side of glory, we may never know. And that is trust. That is faith. This is the substance of faith. Things unseen, things hoped for is spoken of in Hebrews. But that faith is not in something fuzzy and unknown. It's not faith and hope that I'm going to live to be 100 years old like George Beverly Shea. My faith and hope is in God. And that whether he gives me 20 more years or 20 more minutes, my life is for him and for his glory. God is doing so much through the Ninevehs that are around us. Should I not, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city? He has pity on them as he has had pity on us who know Christ as Lord and Savior. He's had pity on us that he has revealed himself to us, that we can read this and through the power of the Holy Spirit, understand what he has for us today. What was he doing back then? What is he doing now? He's had pity on us that we might have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and communion with him in this life. He even provides rain. And you go, dude, what? It chapter four like just ends. Like what's the rest of the story? What happened to Jonah? I don't know. Will we see Jonah in heaven? I don't know. Did Jonah remain petulant? Well, he sure didn't go back. What I said at the start, he didn't go back evangelizing and the like. He didn't stick around. He hated him. Did he change? I don't know. But here we sit today. Am I going to sit in my bitterness and frustration and my anger at the cards that God has dealt me? Or am I going to be a saint who trusts him and is thankful in all circumstances? As he has been gracious to me, am I going to lavish that grace to folks around me? Starting with my family and my brothers and sisters in Christ. So we close our study of Jonah and know this, that God is calling us to be a people of thanksgiving and worship. God is calling us to obedience. God is calling us to trust him in that obedience. What is he gonna do through your obedience? He might bring you misery. He might bring you suffering and still I will trust in him. I must lavish the kindness and grace he has shown to me to others. I will cling to him in the good, the bad, or the ugly. I would much hope that I would not be one who rails against his grace. 
So we choose this day whom we serve. Let's bow. God, what a, what a haunting story. What a haunting narrative. Oh God, that we would not be this way. That we would not spurn your grace. That we would not disdain your grace. That we would not be angry with you. But oh God, even in the frustration and sorrow and grief and agony of this world, that we would hold fast to what you are doing. That we would do, go when you tell us to go. That we would do as you would have us to do. That we would speak when you would have us to speak. But we would do it with lavish grace. Uncompromising of the truth. Oh God, help us to be the men and women you would have us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.